You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, I'm Nicholas Sperling. This is a social justice podcast, and today's topic is human trafficking. Today I'm joined by Kathleen Cashin for this conversation. Kathleen, can you introduce yourself, please? For sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining. Uh, so I get to be the anti-human trafficking coordinator for Covenant House in Vancouver. Um, I've worked downtown as a social worker since 2015. And so um, I have a lot of love for the city and for this cause. And I'm so thrilled that you're having me here. Wonderful. Thanks again for joining. And we all want anti-human trafficking. So I think that's a really important position. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of what you do. It's going to be part of uh, what I ask you about. But before we get to that, uh, we like to give our audience sort of an understanding of what the topic is every time we do one of these podcasts. And I, I think people probably have a general understanding of what human trafficking is, but I know I certainly don't have a very in-depth understanding. Can you explain for the audience what human trafficking looks like? For sure. Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the official definition that I have on my little iPad, and then we can kind of unpack it from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so human trafficking involves the recruiting, harboring, and or controlling of a person for the purpose of exploitation. So in Canada, that's most commonly sex trafficking or labor trafficking. Um, it is described as a modern form of slavery. So it really does mean that someone is forced to do something against their will. And the kind of colloquial terms that we can understand with that is they're forced either through actual force, so that's threats of violence to themselves or a loved one, um, fraud, uh, so that could be um, even a fraudulent relationship or a fraudulent partner or coercion. And I think when you ask the question of what does it look like, uh, especially working in a place like Covenant House, we don't necessarily see, and I actually don't think human trafficking often looks like that Liam Neeson movie that kind of the the anti-human trafficking sector kind of yells at the world, this isn't what it looks like. Because how we see it more is around folks who have limited choice and someone approaches them and says, hey, I can meet your needs. And it turns out that the way to meet those needs is through manipulation and coercion and exploitation. Right. What a perfect time for an ambulance to go by outside oh, yeah. while we're having this conversation. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that'll pick up in the audio, but I just thought I'd mention it in case anyone's hearing funny sounds right now. Can you explain some of the work that you do with Covenant House? I think you've, you've touched a little bit on it, but can you just expand as to what it is that you're doing, but also maybe what Covenant House as a whole does? Oh, for sure. So I'll start, I guess, with yeah, Covenant House as a whole and then this little section um, because, yeah, you're talking to the anti-human trafficking department. Mm-hmm. All of us. It's just me. Um, at the moment, hopefully we'll grow. But Covenant House supports youth 16 to 24 who might be unhoused or experiencing challenges related to homelessness. Um, so that might be anything from addiction um, to mental health to like even realistically being new to Vancouver. And the services that we have, we we call a continuum of care. So uh, it really is anything as kind of free and easy as meeting a drop-in worker down at our drop-in on Seymour and Drake to having an outreach worker meet you in community. Um, or we also have crisis program, which is a place for folks to stay in and have a roof over their head for some time. And then uh, we have a life skills program as well. 
Throughout all of those, we have amazing staff of youth workers and social workers and clinical counselors. So it's a fantastic and, and honestly multifaceted organization that I'm just one part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing incredible work there. And uh, I would encourage our listeners to look up Covenant House and, and see maybe how they can help out the organization. How does human trafficking differ from human smuggling? Uh, for sure. So smuggling um, is more of that clandestine taking someone from one place to another, and it, it requires a transfer over a border. But what uh, human trafficking is, and especially in Canada, is it's most often uh, domestic. So in, in Canada, the statistics are that uh, most folks that are trafficked in Canada are Canadian citizens. Uh, or here in Canada on, and unfortunately we see this quite often on visas like student visas or temporary foreign worker visas. Uh, we do see less human smuggling. Uh, and I think it kind of goes back to that. If you're looking for human smuggling, then you probably won't, um, have your eyes open as much to human trafficking. Right. There's sort of two different avenues. Yeah. I, I also realize, I'm sorry, cause I jump around. Um, that I didn't actually answer your question as to what I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just said Covenant House. Um, but what we do, and I think it also answers the question of what's happening in Vancouver right now, is there are, and, and I get to then toot the horns of people who do amazing work, there are amazing services for underage folks, so folks under the age of 18. And then there are incredible services for survivors in the community, anything from like full rehabilitation programs to um, learning opportunities. And the way that we at Covenant House have kind of fit in is to take a no wrong door approach, which means that we're in the midst of uh, doing knowledge translation from this project that's funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada, so that all of our staff are able to better recognize and support uh, survivors and those at risk or victimized by human trafficking. And I specifically want to say that because it's my soapbox of being a youth service. Uh, the biggest learning that I've taken from this, this role in learning about human trafficking is that if you're working with youth, you're going to work with survivors and any youth service can put in supports. It's, it's really not as hard as you might think it is, but the difference that you can make when you start to look at human trafficking and have some specific interventions is transformative. So is youth then the primary group of people that are affected by human trafficking, or that's just your your primary focus in in that instance? Uh, For us, it's our primary focus, but it is um, youth are statistically uh, more targeted around trafficking. I think, and that the average age of trafficking, um, its onset is about 13 to 14. Um, and so even when we see folks, we, we start our work at 16. And, um, someone might have been victimized for years before we see them. Um, and that's why those services for folks underage are also so important. Right. And what, what are, are the reasons for the age being so young? Like what, what, what is happening to these people when they're being trafficked? Is it, is it like you mentioned before for, um, sex related things? Is it, um, child labor? Like what, what, what are we talking about here? Um, the younger age is, unfortunately, more often um, child sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'll kind of give a warning to your listeners that this isn't 
the bright side of, of my work, but unfortunately familial trafficking does happen. Um, so that's trafficking within a family unit. Um, a trafficker is someone who's typically related or, or within a close knit community. Uh, and a challenge around that is, is it becomes a family norm. And so when you're talking about those younger ages, uh, that's, that's part of the reason. Right. And that was actually going to be a question I was mm-hmm. going to ask you later, but maybe I'll, I'll ask that now. So in an instance where it's happening within a family or it's happening with someone that you know, is that just being enabled by other family members? Are they unaware that that's happening? How, how does that, how is that possible? It, it seems like it would be such a challenge to get away with that. I think in general, human trafficking is covert. Uh, oftentimes families aren't aware, um, or if they are, then it is a family norm. Um, and it's often intergenerational. And so I think understanding kind of the, the trauma side of it doesn't excuse trafficking by any means. Um, but you understand kind of these patterns in a family and that, oh, no, this is just something that we don't talk to other folks about, which again, I think makes it more difficult to reach out and ask for help. And partly why we chose to take the no wrong door approach, uh, because it means we get to form therapeutic alliances or, or um, in colloquial terms, kind of like a, a healthy staff to um, youth relationship um, that can start to kind of build a space outside of where someone's being trafficked. Right. And I guess it's along the lines of um, instances of sexual assault, for instance, mm-hmm. where uh, people who are victims uh, are typically victims at the hands of someone who they've known as mm-hmm. opposed to a stranger. And there are all sorts of reasons why people don't come forward about that. But um, it, it's sad to hear that it's it's um, so prevalent within people that y- you should tr- that you should be able to trust your family, right? And, and uh, to have that trust taken away and, and to be put in that horrible situation is just awful. Why does human trafficking exist? So this is kind of Looking at it from the perspective of, I guess, a, a trafficker in some ways, um, what leads someone to live that type of lifestyle? So I think, and, and it's, human trafficking is systemic. Um, and it really is rooted in inequity and isolation. So when we look at the needs that every human being has, you can kind of look at Maslow's hierarchy and there are those basic needs. You need, you need a roof over your head. You need food on the table. You need clean water and, and clothing. But something that we especially look at as social workers is there's also an attachment need. Um, every human being has a need to feel connected to another person or a community or a family member. Um, and unfortunately, when those needs go unmet, um, whether that's because of discrimination, whether that's isolation, intergenerational poverty, really um, anything or, or, or homelessness, we see, unfortunately, that traffickers take advantage of those needs. And part of, of the process that a trafficker will take is saying, oh, like, what are your needs? What are your hopes and dreams? Let me meet those needs for you. But they meet those needs through manipulative, coercive, and exploitive ways. Right. So it's almost convincing people that they can help achieve their dreams in some ways. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, it's, that's really part of the like looming and gr- grooming stage. Um, sorry, luring and grooming, um, where, yeah, you're, 
you're paying attention to someone. Um, you're giving them all, all that, that affection and attention that they need as human beings. But traffickers are really at that point gaining information, um, to then at a later time say, Oh, well, if you do want ABC in your life, you need to be doing XYZ. Right. I guess this would be a good time to talk about whether there are certain demographics of people who are disproportionately affected by human trafficking. And you've already touched on the fact that there are. Mm -hmm. Um, You focus specifically on on youth. Are there other demographics who are sort of more vulnerable when it comes to human trafficking? Um, For sure. And I think uh, I'm a research nerd. And so I I went down through this process of learning or I went down a research vortex, as we call my family. Um, my dad likes those vortexes. Oh, yeah. yeah he's oh, they're... a historian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, and so I think when, when I speak about um, kind of specific communities that are targeted, I, I do just want to preface that even the research shows the reason why these individuals, these communities are targeted is at no fault of the community. Mm-hmm. It's because we're dealing with systemic discrimination and barriers. And so as, as I go into the next part, just keeping in mind, um, so one of them is Indigenous communities. We do know that uh, there was a call to action for uh, human trafficking in the Murder and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself am, am a settler, uh, and so I can't speak for the Indigenous community, but um, part of what I've learned is that uh, really at the point of contact, some nations were matriarchal. Um, they were led by um, kind of matriarchal leadership and through colonization, um, patriarchal tendencies, and and I put human trafficking within that, um, really start to, um, sorry, really tried to dismantle those matriarchal structures. Uh, and we can see things like uh, the Highway of Tears, unfortunately. Um, as a representation of that. And so there's also kind of back to that if you're working around youth and youth homelessness, you're probably working around survivors of trafficking, uh, the 2SLGBTQIA plus community. Um, and again, we can kind of see that from a systemic lens that unfortunately this community are more often um, kicked out of homes with fewer familial supports, meaning that there are fewer opportunities. There's greater isolation and greater um, inequity. Right. Less of a support system in place, I guess. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and also to kind of our discussion about how trafficking can happen in relationship, that when the information that you receive about relationships is heteronormative, then how do you know what a healthy and safe relationship looks like? Right. And uh, so if there are any um, educators on the call, teach about all kinds of relationships and love. Uh, and then I think one that uh, there are two more so one that we actually see often and, and we're um, recording this in April and we see it far higher in the summer is um, newcomers to Canada and especially uh-huh. temporary foreign workers. Uh, because you're looking at a situation where folks are nervous to speak to police. Um, so if there is a right that was infringed upon, um, folks might not have that confidence to go and speak to police, not know our systems. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a, a trafficker will get someone to work outside of visa parameters and then say, well, you can't report me because then you'll be deported. Right. Um, and I'm marginalized communities in general, yeah. whether they're familiar with their systems or not, often have trouble speaking with police as well. Oh, most definitely. Mm-hmm. 
And I think around trauma-informed practice and, and even a knowledge of what trauma looks like in trafficking is, is huge so that folks feel comfortable speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one, and actually to that point as well about speaking to authorities, is folks with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, there's this paternalization um, that can happen, I think, even back to relationships. Um, that our folks taught information about what healthy relationships look like. And uh, if folks have kind of grown up in a paternalized environment, um, then uh, a trafficker can take on a, a, paternal, a paternalistic stance. Right. So that's yeah. about that grooming aspect. Yeah. Right. Um, and I also read that income plays mm-hmm. a large role in trafficking. Have you noticed that as well? Um, yes and no. I think from what we've seen is that anyone can be trafficked. So truly, if you're listening to this and um, you, you've got a home in Point Grey and think that, oh, no, trafficking can't happen here, it can. But to that point of inequity and isolation, that when there are fewer opportunities, when folks don't feel like there is a, an economic incentive to kind of work a a minimum wage job and, and kind of build up your resume that, yeah, a trafficker can step in and say, oh, well, I have a solution for you. Right. Yeah. And interestingly, every single one of those that you've brought up from Indigenous people to 2SLGBTQIA plus people to people with disabilities to um, refugees and immigration, those are all episodes we've had of this podcast. So, um, as always with all of our episodes, there's this intersectionality between the issues that we're talking about. And it sounds like this is no different. In fact, there's an exceptional amount of crossover when it comes to human trafficking. The soapbox that we're on all the time is that human trafficking is an intersectional issue. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about one without the other. Right. Uh, and is it uh, also divided along gender lines? Is, is, is that uh, at play or is it sort of um, whether you're a man or a woman, non-binary person, you're sort of equally vulnerable? Um, so I'm going to say that I have an answer that I'm not sure is actually an answer. Okay. So, um, the statistics tell us that women are more often trafficked than men. Um, but we also know that a lot of services out there are available for women and not necessarily for men. Oh, so it might be a lack of, uh, someone to come to if, if you're a man and being human trafficked. Exactly. And, and actually our... Internal statistics show that um, about half the folks that we support identify as women. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm awful at math. So like the other half, so 25% or so, is divided equally between men and trans and gender diverse or, or non-binary. Right. And so, um, yeah, we, we know that men and boys are trafficked, but we also know that there are fewer spaces to speak about it. Right. And I mean, I think that's the case for... A lot of things, like when mm-hmm. it comes to domestic violence, for instance, intimate par- partner violence, there are much less supports for, for men in those situations than there are for women. Yeah. So we've sort of touched on the fact that people who are being trafficked, can uh, it, it can be a result of a relationship that they have with someone. But I've also heard that people who are being trafficked don't necessarily even recognize that they are being trafficked. Can you maybe explain how it is that someone would not be able to recognize that and uh, if if they're in a position of not being able to recognize it, and, and this could be a situation that I guess anyone could find themselves mm-hmm. in, what are some warning signs that you could look out for? For sure. So I um, I think especially when trafficking happens within an intimate relationship, 
the the trafficker is is not going to lead this person to believe that they're trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of again the if we want our life to look like this, if you want your hopes and dreams to be fulfilled, then this is what we do. And it can often be put on to the person um, being victimized of no, you made these choices when that's not the case. Unfortunately, that does mean that a lot of folks don't identify as trafficked. And I would also say that the the more that we think that trafficking is just kind of the the imagery that comes when you Google it, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, of of cages and handcuffs and and all these things, that's not what it looks like. And if that's our only perception of it, then folks will kind of downgrade their own experience of oh, it didn't look like that. The door wasn't locked. I could leave. Right. Um, and so the more that we kind of perpetuate this idea of this is what trafficking looks like, the the fewer folks will actually identify their own experience as, as trafficking. So also before the red flags, there's also even the thing of um, if, if you're experiencing violence by a partner, what is more painful to kind of process that this person whom you trust is doing this against you or that this is kind of just life? Uh, and so I think acknowledging that it can be really painful to identify as a survivor. And, uh, so again, that's kind of another barrier to folks not identifying their experience as, as trafficking and, and it's survival. But really, what are the red flags? Um, I think that honestly, there are a lot of, um, really great resources online to be able to, I would say that, um, Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline is a great one to be able to see, oh, like, um, are these kind of red flags? But I think rather than kind of maybe um, being hyper vigilant to everyone around you, it's more of uh, for myself and and when we work with folks, it's more of are your rights infringed upon? Are you are you healthy? Are you are you cared for? Uh, I think we we have um, a satellite health clinic at Covenant House, and one of the things that we watch for is could an injury that has become an infection be prevented mm-hmm. if there was a Band-Aid, if there was polysporin. And so when you look at someone's needs that go unmet or someone is working, but they are not taking that money home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I- I'm almost turning that question back of if you get to know what a healthy relationship looks like, if you know what your rights are as a worker, then when those rights become infringed upon, whether that even meets that legal definition of human trafficking or not, you can see that that's an exploitive scenario and seek help. So how is it that you proactively get Mm -hmm. people to understand this? Is this something that needs to be taught in schools so that people are aware to look out for these types of things? Um, Or is that, I mean, there's often talk about subject matter not being appropriate for kids of a certain age. This would obviously be quite a challenging topic to have with a kid as well. But um, rather than trying to take someone who has been in a position of being trafficked and saying, okay, now let's teach you what to look out for so that this Mm -hmm. doesn't happen again, saying, how do we let people know before it gets to that stage? So I kind of like, I'm giving out all these wonderful folks in the community. There are amazing people who go into schools and who provide this education at an age-appropriate space. Mm-hmm. They they do an amazing job of teaching about what is consent, healthy versus unhealthy relationships, um, what is uh, child sexual exploitation material, and peer-to-peer exploitation. So they, they do go through all of that. And very oftentimes, um, a youth will come up to them at the end and say, you know what, I actually, I think I've experienced that. Wow. Or more oftentimes, I have a friend who's experienced that. 
I think on our end and just knowing where Covenant House fits in all of this is uh, we try and inform everyone of this is your right to safety. This is your right to justice. This is your right to a safe workplace. And if ever that right is infringed upon, we we have tools and we have solutions right. um, because you you are a valuable person. And I think for us, rather than walking everyone through a journey of this is what human trafficking looks like, it's kind of more from the right side. And, and that's the tools we use mostly because we're working oftentimes with folks in crisis where sitting down for two hours to talk about human trafficking is just not really what folks are up to. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to something that you'd said previously around how the image that is portrayed mm -hmm. of human trafficking isn't necessarily the realities of mm -hmm. human trafficking. And I want to take a little bit of personal responsibility at this point and be accountable to the fact that this podcast is based off of a coloring book that I created. There is a page in there on human trafficking. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what that page looks like exactly. But I know that it was crafted based off of research that I had done. And I just want the audience to be aware if they're looking at this coloring book and looking at that page to maybe do a little bit more research to make sure that the information that they have on human trafficking is correct and not simply based off of the images I've put out there based off of the research that I've done online. Because I, I, I want to be fair to the topic and, and to what you're saying here about how it's not always portrayed correctly. Um, um, and I do have to just say, like, I, I very much appreciate that. And um, over the last, I'd say, like, five, ten years, it's been such a learning process of actually learning from survivors, um, learning what works and what doesn't work. And I'll say, like, for us at Covenant House, like, we've been in this learning journey. We're just starting our third year. Mm -hmm. And, like, boy, howdy, have we learned a lot even within two and so I I expect this podcast to come out and probably like a year down the line, I'll be like, oh, I wish I had said that. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that once we get through these sort of overarching topics, uh, because human trafficking as a whole is very mm -hmm. broad, not necessarily as broad as the one that uh, came out prior to this on technology, but uh, it's hard to have conversations about the particulars and, and really delve in depth into a specific aspect of an issue. So once we get through educating our audience on sort of the broad topics, I'm hoping that we can start having conversations around the issues within the issues. Mm -hmm. And and maybe that's an opportunity to reach out to Covenant House a year from now when you're having those thoughts and we can um, maybe have you back and, and we can talk about some of those things. In my research for this episode, I came across the ideas of grooming and trauma bonding. And, and they're not new concepts to me, but they're new in the sense that um, I don't know how they relate to human trafficking. Can you maybe explain the ways in which grooming and, and trauma bonding affect people within the context of, of human trafficking? Um, for sure. And uh, I'll even just like give a slight kind of adjustment there. So um, for a long time, we've called it trauma bonding mm -hmm. um, or kind of folks will colloquially say Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, but the language has switched over to trauma coerced attachment. Oh, okay. Because now we're starting to understand kind of back to that, that attachment is a need um, and that that need can be c manipulated um, to uh, coerce someone into exploitation. So cutting off other contacts so that the, the contact that they need can only really come from that one place. Yeah, so it really is that someone is um, within a traumatic environment 
um, which human trafficking often is, um, but they're still having that attachment need met Mm -hmm. by a trafficker. Um, and this often looks like over-identifying with a trafficker that a, a person being trafficked is responsible for that, that trafficker. And this is, this is often a tool, especially in those intimate partner relationships of, of trafficking, which kind of the, the term for that could be like a Romeo pimp. And it, it again, it makes it more challenging to reach out and seek support. Uh, the statistic actually is that it takes about seven attempts to exit trafficking. Wow. Um, and so we talk about things that are quite similar, like intimate partner violence. And we know that it, it's not one and done. It's an ongoing process. And part of that ongoing process is very much because of trauma-coerced detachment. Now, to, to go to your other question of how do we even get to trauma-coerced detachment, there are kind of these stages of grooming and gaming that traffickers will will use but even just recognizing before i go into them that someone can be exploited at any point in this experience mm-hmm. so um the first stage being that luring piece where a trafficker will try and find someone who has unmet needs and again if those are those maslow's hierarchy of needs basic needs someone who might be unhoused needs a place to stay is hungry or or cold here's um, Tim Horton's coffee and, and a Danish, um, to those attachment needs. Hey, it looks like you're isolated. You, you want someone to talk to. I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, the, at that point, they'll really take all this information and all, what are the hopes and dreams of a person? Um, and then in the grooming phase, they'll give all of those hopes and dreams there. Um, they'll, they'll, uh, survivors have shared that this, this kind of felt like the best life has been. But then, uh, and again, it's kind of quite similar to intimate partner violence. The gaming phase will be then when um, those needs will be pulled back. And if those are needs for attention, or affection, clothing, etc., and they'll only be returned kind of as a cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes with a reward system where someone's boundaries are crossed. And unfortunately, oftentimes in, in sexual exploitation, it will be a sexual boundary. Yeah, so then um, the uh, from luring to, to grooming and gaming, and then, again, that will be uh, what has been provided in the grooming and gaming phase will be taken back and, and um, returned as a reward for um, a boundary crossing. And then from there is, is kind of this full experience of exploitation. Right. Um, sorry. Uh, well, so you talked about having uh, or people needing seven attempts to to get out of uh, out of these situations are there repercussions like when someone tries to get out and they're not able to and and they end up finding themselves back in that human trafficking situation what is sort of i guess causing them to go back and and stay back and then leave and come back like are is that um manipulation men- mental manipulation of some kind um physical manipulation of some kind yeah, you you try starting fresh in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I I learned from a survivor, and like it's something that I carry with me every day. Of, um, you can't expect someone to leave a situation where their needs were met, even if their needs were met in a coercive, exploitive way, into an environment where those needs aren't met. 
So if you're going to support someone to exit, you better be able to meet every one of those needs that a trafficker was. Right. And, and that's what Covenant House is aiming to do. Is it? It's it's a tall ask, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, we, we give it a shot. Um, but yeah, it is everything from those basic needs. If a trafficker was providing housing, then how would you make sure someone has a roof over their head? If a trafficker was providing esteem and um, attachment, then how can those needs be met? It is very much a scenario of um, that if someone is, is leaving a trafficker, then how are you going to meet those needs outside of it? Right. And oftentimes folks um, might return to a trafficker because those needs went un- went unmet. And I'm imagining, I mean, typically people engage in illegal behavior because it pays well. So human traffickers, I'm thinking, might have a lot of money and resources to be able to meet people's needs in a way that um, Covenant House might struggle with or, or any other organization that's attempting to help people who are, are in a human trafficking situation. Is, would that be correct? Oh, most certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also so one of the um, strategies that we use is a, and now I'll get kind of in the social worky clinical side of it, um, but one of the strategies we use is a service model that is focused on that any engagement you have with a survivor, the, the goal of that engagement is to build a healthy therapeutic alliance, a healthy relationship that, that above all else, that, that's the goal of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the drivers of how you build that therapeutic alliance is autonomous, kind of choice-based focus on safety and opportunity. Um, we're actually kind of working against those stages of trafficking, whereby we're working to, to build healthy attachment. And whereas human trafficking, by definition, limits the choice and, and the autonomy of survivors, that if we focus on choice-based work around safety, building safety, an opportunity, especially if a trafficker has made someone believe that um, there is no opportunity outside of this trafficking, um, then it's pretty nifty to say, oh, well, but what about this scholarship and, and that job opportunity? Or even just to, like, stay at a safe place for a night. And does community help, like, having other, I mean, obviously having those kinds of um, connections. You mm-hmm. talked about being helpful, but is is there a community of survivors who get together and um, interact with each other in, in a way that's positive? Or, or is it, um, something where it, it might cause more problems because you're taking on other people's trauma. Um, so there are some folks and, and, um, our, our work is, um, has survivor inclusion, but I myself am not a survivor. And so there are spaces that folks work in and, and join. And, um, they're actually incredible, like international networks of survivors that are fantastic, but it definitely is based on, people's own personal journey of healing. Mm-hmm. And there's someone that we have learned from through this process and they talk about someone's right to justice and that justice means something different for every person. For some people, justice is speaking to the United Nations, to the government of Canada saying, this is what needs to be done. For others, justice means taking their trafficker to court. Um, and for other folks, justice means living a full, rich life as they define it, and never speaking about this experience again. And so um, there is a community, but 
it's it's not for everyone and it's for everyone's kind of own journey to figure out how they want to achieve justice for themselves. Right. And I guess logically that makes sense. We're all completely yeah. unique individuals and everyone's going to have a different way of handling different situations. Your point to speaking to the government and, and trying mm -hmm. to uh, create change that way is actually bringing me to my next question, which is what can the government do to help? I think to kind of tie in those two points of, oh, this is an intersectional issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, the point of if someone's going to exit, then their needs need to be met. Then it really is how do we address these intersectional issues? So I, I kind of come back to the Murder and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. There was a call to justice around human trafficking. Listen to that call, make change. But I'd also say um, we see trafficking um, really come out of this inequity. And we know that the city is, is unaffordable um, and that people's basic needs are going unmet. Uh, and the more that we can address those systemic challenges, the, the fewer push factors there will be because folks have opportunity and safety. Right. So maybe things like providing affordable housing or mm -hmm. um, creating universal basic income or something along those lines. I, I imagine I, maybe funding for organizations like yours to be able to provide supports as well might be helpful. I won't say no to that. <laughs> um, yes. And I actually have to say something that the government has done well is they recently, um, although I'm not sure on the date of how recently, um, have the temporary resident permit. Mm. So for folks who are newcomers to Canada and they, they, if they are a survivor of trafficking, they can apply for a temporary resident permit to stay in Canada. And from that, they can also apply for humanitarian compassion grounds. And that has been tremendously helpful because it directly counters what traffickers, especially international traffickers, convince folks of you can't seek help. You can't talk to anyone because you'll be deported. Um, the government has really made systems where, no, like you, you won't be deported. You are a victim of a crime. Right. Um, and I do have to say, like, kudos. Yeah, that, that sounds like it's yeah. a really important change to have made. We're getting close to the end mm -hmm. of the questions that I have. So at this point, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be really important to bring up for our audience? So from this learning, and we um, did, did quite an extensive consultation and a literature review and um, to try and figure out, like, how do you do this as a youth-focused organization? Mm -hmm. And the soapbox that I think I'll, I'll stand on and scream for the rest of my life is that any organization can do it. If you're serving youth, you're serving survivors, uh, and there are kind of these five components um, that I'll, I'll leave folks with that most organizations can put in place to be well-equipped to serve survivors. Um, and so that staff awareness, being aware of what human trafficking is, um, what it isn't, being able to see those signs, understand that it's happening in our cities and in our towns. So staff awareness, resources, um, to the point of be able to, to meet the needs of young people, be part of networks, engage with folks who are doing this work. If your organization is not specifically focused on anti-human trafficking, chat to one like Covenant House that is, um, so that you can pick up a phone and you can call if you have a question and, Share with youth what their rights are. Share with youth what healthy relationships and healthy attachment look like. It is their right to know. Let them know what their rights are. Um, and then the last one being that service model. So 
work really from a relational side, support individuals to build healthy attachment with safety and opportunity that's driven by their own choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the recipe that's we're, we're starting on a journey down and hopefully I'll give you an update one day. But yeah, that, that's my thing that I would love for anyone to walk away with. Of, okay, if, if we have these five things, we can do it. Right. And that, that kind of ties into my last question as mm-hmm. well, which is we try to end all of our podcasts on the note of what our listeners can do to help, mm-hmm. uh, wh- whether it's human trafficking or any other subject. What can the listeners do, whether it's volunteer work, donations, um, research, some other means? Um, what, what are some possibilities? I think first, just know that human trafficking happens in Canada. Um, we are not immune. And knowing that, uh, have conversations with folks about um, exactly what we we're talking about, about healthy relationships, about rights, um, about healthy boundaries and attachment. But then I'd also say, if we can, um, if everyone on this call can get 10 more people and 10 more people, and we can actually address inequity and isolation, then we can make a bigger impact. And even though that kind of seems like a big ask, that if we can address those systemic barriers that stop people from engaging with one another, then we're already addressing isolation. And, and it's kind of the the most optimistic, like bright, sunshiny closing to be like, talk to folks, be engaged, reduce isolation with your own time and care. Mm-hmm. Sounds like education is key. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. I've certainly learned a lot. I hope our audience has learned a lot. This has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Berling. I've been joined today by Kathleen Cashin. This has been a conversation about human trafficking, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.